There is not a single inch of your body over which Jesus does not proclaim with sovereign authority, mine. There is no place in your soul, there is no corner of your mind or heart over which Jesus does not say, mine. As our Creator, as the Savior who redeems His people with His own blood, as the risen, ascended, reigning ruler of heaven and earth, Jesus is Lord of everything. If you say, where are those thoughts coming from? That's pretty intense. We've been singing about it this entire time. He is my all in all. He is the Lord of everything. The absolute sovereign Lord over body and mind. It's not a stretch after what we have sung, what we know about the Scriptures, to say such things. Now as we hear this truth, Jesus is Lord over body and mind. Two sources of resistance are certain to commend themselves to our minds. And the first is our world adamantly rejects this notion. You may choose to mess up your life with such strange restrictions, but don't trouble me with such nonsense. We live in a world obsessed with personal freedoms, unrestricted self-expression, and pleasure-seeking. What is this talk about one who is Lord over what I think and what I do with my body? Keep your religion off of my body. But a second source of resistance echoes from within the hallways of our own hearts. As born-again followers of Jesus Christ who have repented of our sin, we've come to trust in the death and resurrection of Christ for the redemption of our souls. For us, indwelling sin bristles against Christ's absolute rule over our bodies and over our minds. And one of the crucial points of resistance that we experience is in the realm of sexuality. Our secular world, the world in which we live, the culture in which we live, has gotten about as close as it can bring itself to mere personal consent as the only law restricting sexuality. That's the world in which we find ourselves today as we gather here as Christ's people. But we do gather as Christ's people. And we gather, as it were, at His feet right now. We're drawn out from the world to listen to a different message. To orient differently and distinctively as we consider His teaching, His loving voice as our Savior has never issued a word of counsel to harm us. Never. So now He speaks to us about this most personal matter. We all relate to it a bit differently depending on age and sex and experience and makeup. It is a personal conversation, but one that must be had publicly. Jesus knew this, and this is why He teaches on it in the Sermon on the Mount. If you'll make your way to Matthew chapter 5 today as we continue our series through His Sermon. Now, by this point in our series, we should have several orienting concepts firmly in mind. And these have been brought out to some degree, and let me just stress them again as we come into this conversation. We must understand, we're really going to be at a disadvantage if we don't get this. One, the Jewish rabbis of Jesus' day largely misinterpreted the law of Moses to the people of Israel. The Mosaic Law, it was their task to interpret this law, but they largely failed in that task. First of all, they taught that one can earn a righteous standing in God's eyes by obeying God's law. That you could, in a sense, keep the law and earn the favor of God thereby. Secondly, they interpreted the law such that they, at least, were able to keep it. Or so they said. And so what was happening was that they were very proud about their obedience to the law, but as they interpreted it, people didn't see this, 
But as they were interpreting it, they were taking the bar of the law that had to be cleared and they were pulling down on it. Lowering it lower and lower that they at least could clear it. Second thing we must have in mind is that Jesus challenges the established rabbinical interpretation of the law in this sermon. That lowering of the bar, the lowering of God's expectations, Jesus speaks to it and He lifts the bar back up where it should be. In fact, takes it far beyond what they could conceive. Notice chapter 5 and verse 21 where He says, You have heard that it was said. Verse 22, but I say. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, but he teaches differently. Verse 28. Verse 31, it was also said. Verse 32, but I say. Verse 33, again you have heard that it was said. Verse 34, but I say. Verse 38, you have heard. There's 39, but I say. 43, you have heard. 44, but I say. You've got to get a sense of what is taking place here. That is, there is a call to Christ's followers that is rejecting and correcting the false interpretation of the law that was taking place by the establishment, the Pharisees particularly. And notice chapter 5 and verse 20. This is Christ's call to His followers. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He repeatedly calls these teachers hypocrites in chapter 6. And this is all reserving time for the scathing rebuke in chapter 23. You, basically, he says, are taking people to hell with your teaching. This is, by the way, the Jesus you don't talk about in a lot of churches. But this is the true Christ. He rebuked them sharply. And he teaches here against their interpretations. Now in verse 16, he has said that we should let our light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The Pharisees were quite willing to let people see their good deeds. It was all for the glory of self, but they were very willing to show their righteousness to others. But again, Christ calls them hypocrites. You say one thing, you are something else. And he is exposing them here, beginning at verse 3, as being those who are not poor in spirit. They're proud. Third point that we must have in view. By attacking the rabbis, Jesus was not attacking the Mosaic law as such. Rather, he declares himself to be the fulfillment of the law. 5.17 Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I don't think he's probably here addressing a major attack yet at this point in his ministry, but one that he certainly anticipates. He's taking the established rabbinical teaching and he's turning it on its head. He's explaining where it is wrong and he realizes that some people so attach the Pharisees, the teachers of the law to the Mosaic law that they're going to think Jesus is dumping the Mosaic law. Not at all. The entire law and the prophets, that's the way that they would refer to the Old, we would call it the Old Testament today. The entire law and prophets pointed ultimately to Jesus. Jesus not only kept the law perfectly, but was the one to whom the law and the prophets pointed as the epitome of righteousness, the embodiment of all that God wills of man. Carson has well noted that the issue then is less a matter of how Jesus relates to the law and the prophets and more a matter of how the law and the prophets relate to Him. Now that is audacious. 
unless he is who he claims to be, the Son of God. The Son of Man, described in the book of Daniel, come for this mission to fulfill the Old Testament. We see some evidence of that as the text unfolds in chapter 11 and verse 13. With the coming of John, a new era had dawned. That to which the law and the prophets pointed was here in the person of Jesus. Now all that's going on as he teaches this, you have heard it said in the interpretation of the law, but I say to you. He's doing more than simply elevating the calling of the law. He is saying that it is epitomized in me. He is its fulfillment. Now what had the crowds heard? Verse 27. We come to Matthew 5 and verse 27. What had they heard? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Yeah, they'd heard that. That's the uh, seventh commandment of the law. Clearly they had heard that. But again, how do you read that contextually? Contextually, if we're understanding how this works itself out, then we understand that what he means is the rabbis have been teaching you this, that it is wrong to commit adultery. And we might add in then sort of the idea and that that's the end of it. It's wrong to commit the act of adultery. So God's law against adultery only envisioned the idea of physical intercourse with another man's wife. That was it, as the rabbis taught. That's what you've heard. Do not do that, they taught, and you're good. You have met God's standard. You have complied to the letter of the law. In fact, the rabbis, as they developed the concept, largely looked at adultery as theft. You were stealing the property of another man. That was how they interpreted it. Jesus is saying, you're missing the whole point. Jesus understands that God's intention with the prohibition of adultery goes much farther than the oral traditions of the rabbis, much farther than they were willing to take it. They brought the bar down so that they could step over it. Jesus said, you're missing the whole point. So what does Jesus teach? We're going to focus primarily just on this next verse today. Verse 28, as we look through his teaching on adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we see immediately that the law of God, Jesus insists, extends to our thoughts, not just to our deeds. Adultery violates God's law, but so do fantasies about adultery. Now let's take a little sideline here for a moment and just ask the question as we think about this, why is adultery wrong? God says we're not to do it, but why does He say that we are not to do it? What makes it so wrong? Thinking about this from a biblical perspective, we must always start with this. And that is, sex is God's invention and good gift. It's His design. Our Creator gave this good and wholesome gift to mankind for pleasure, for relational intimacy, and for procreation. He has not given it equally to all. Jesus himself was never married. It is not an essential aspect of our humanity to be married. But God is the giver of this gift. This was all his doing. We must never forget that. But as God handed the keys of sexual intimacy to Adam and to Eve, He revealed that such intimacy was intended only for a man and a woman who have legitimately covenanted before God to live with one another in the bond of marriage until separated by death. And as society develops, there is also a witness of that covenant by others who will hold them accountable before God who sees all and cannot lie This is what marriage is. This is the gift that God has given. 
Outside those boundaries, sex is the cavalier misuse of God's good gift. It's taking what He has given and using it for our own selfish and idolatrous purposes. It is using the Creator's gift as a denunciation of His call upon our lives. God knows that sexual expression outside of marriage is harmful. He knows that it will ultimately lead to sorrow, to regret, to emptiness. He knows above all that it leads to relational dysfunction and even horror. It brings debilitation. It brings disease. So He says, here are the confines of this beautiful gift that I give to you as the people made in my image. Now this is a brief consideration. But this is how we need to track, as our world continues to instruct us, that any such counsel is just puritanical in a negative sense. It's just people just telling you what to do, and they have no right to tell you what to do. They're just trying to control you. It's, these are ridiculous ideas that have long passed their time. But as we think biblically, we recognize that God's counsel doesn't rot. It doesn't grow old. It is His good and loving counsel to us that this is where sexual relationships are to stay. God knows, if I could put it at its height, God indeed created us to have sex only with a person who is committed to a lifelong covenant of marital fidelity with us. Any experience of this gift from God is a corruption of it and is a sacrifice of that which God intended for that relationship to be expressed only with someone who has that kind of devotion to you. This is God's good, kind gift to humanity. But back to Jesus' counsel. We have to do a little defending of his statement here, and I've sought to do that just for a few moments. But back to what he said, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That is, adultery is committed with thoughts. It is committed with desires. The indication is that sexual sin starts in the imagination and is rooted in the desires. This is instruction we need. It starts in the imagination. It's rooted in what we want. So adultery is committed first in some dark corner of the mind. Sensual desire is entertained. It is coddled. And eventually that desire takes wings and it seeks fulfillment in some deed. On the one hand, this teaching then makes us gulp with concern. It's much easier to break God's law than we might have wished. Certainly than the rabbis were willing to admit. It's what you want. It's what you're thinking about. This is what we've got to address, says Jesus. But on the other hand, Jesus' instruction also opens a way to valuable strategy. He points us toward fighting lust in our hearts. That is, we need to learn then to identify sinful thoughts. We need to discipline our minds to be thinking that is a wrong thought that has entered my mind. We need to, secondly, confess those thoughts as sin and to do so immediately. Not to coddle it, not to pour water on the plant as it takes root in the soil of our mind, but rather to root it out by saying to God, this plant is... I've uprooted in repentance and I give it to you. Burn it. Take it away. It's wrong. And we need to keep the fight there in our minds, in our thoughts. 
Don't let your desires to kick out the footrest. Don't let your desires allow sin to kick out the footrest on the easy chair in the living room of your mind. To kind of get comfortable there. To, to play with it and allow it to have a place of welcome in your soul. Don't allow sin to be welcome there. Continue to fight it there in the mind. Send it packing. Put shackles on it and send it on to God's custody. Let's turn it a, a bit differently to an area that I would trust in this setting. I've spoken in other settings where this wasn't the case, but I trust in this setting. Not too many of you are highly tempted to steal a car. Now, can I assume that? If, if you are, talk later. Uh, I've talked to people that that's not the case. Uh, but I... It's just not a temptation that I face, that I want to steal that car. Now, I appreciate expensive cars. I I like looking at them. They're intriguing. Um, I have very little struggle in the sinful battles of my sinful heart. I have very little struggle with greed and envy. It's It's not a big problem to me. I suppose now and then it comes like sort of like a fly in my ear when I see this expensive car and I just get out here. You know, it's not a big deal. I don't have much greed. I don't have much envy. I honestly, as God knows my heart, I don't even think there's a blip on the radar that I've ever wanted to steal a car. Like I've really had to fight that thought and that temptation and keep it away because I really want to steal that car. It's just not a sin that I I deal with. But I know in the capacities of my sinful heart, I could develop that temptation. I could set my affections upon a certain kind of car, and I could see circumstances come together where the opportunity was there. And maybe even some other driving factors were there. And if I feed this thinking, if I let it kick out the foot rest on the easy chair in my mind and settle in and begin to think about it and dream about it, there will come a day when I'm going to want to steal a car. Now that's all a pretty easy fight for me. I don't, the greed, the envy thing, is again, it's like a little fly once in a while that I have to shoo away. It's not a big deal. I just don't deal with that. And stealing is not, it's not, not a problem. For me, it's a whole different battle with sexual lust. It's not like a fly. It's like a beautiful stallion that comes riding up to you with a saddle on it and stops right in front of you. I want to get on. The desire is different. But as I fight it, it's much like the desire of stealing a car. I've got to fight this. In my mind, I can't let it take root. I can't begin to entertain such thoughts. I've got to fight it there with confession, recognition, confession, and fleeing from it in my thoughts. So Jesus says, He instructs us here along these lines when He says, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent... To look at a woman with lustful intent very often is possible to do without anyone else knowing. It's going on in your mind, but we must know that when that happens, we have entered into the realm of sin against God. Now let's be careful here. It is not sin to see a woman. Not sin to look at her. The Bible does not say that. It is not sin to recognize that a woman is attractive. The biblical writer says this in Genesis 29, 17 of Rachel. She was beautiful in form and appearance. She was shapely and she was attractive, says the Spirit of God to his people. So we're not playing games here and pretending that someone is not attractive as we see them. But it is sin to entertain a type of thought about such a woman. This is where sin, the sin of desire, and our thought life begins to draw us away. I wish I could touch her. 
I can't stop thinking about her body. I picture it in certain poses in my mind. I daydream that she is my wife or that we are having an affair. I enjoy her beauty in my mind like savoring a piece of candy. I just, I just find pleasure in it. I take a long second look. Or I just take a really long first look. I size her up. I undress her in my thoughts and the like. All of this, says Jesus, is sin. It breaks the law of God. It is the way of life on the path to hell. And it's these types of thoughts that we must learn to recognize and despise as compromising our relationship with God. I think here many Christians fail at this point to recognize what we're dealing with. We are dealing with a relationship with God when we are thinking sinful thoughts sexually. We must learn to reject such desires as belonging to those who will, 520, never inherit the kingdom of God. More on that later. Hang on. But it is wrong to have such thoughts. It is certainly wrong for those thoughts, and I think that's where it starts, to translate then into flirtation. I look forward to being around her. I can't wait to see him again. The heart flutters a little bit, and I look forward to the conversation. Now the thoughts have begun to trickle into action. And we must stop it, or it will find fulfillment. We must not do anything that would prepare the way for a sinful relationship. So how do I relate to the women of the church? How do you relate women to the men of the church? Like brothers and sisters, in the best sense of the term. Like brothers and sisters. Love them, talk to them, relate to them. And if one begins to draw your attention and attracts you more than he or she should, just stay away. Do not start conversing. You can choose who you converse with. If that's where the temptation is, it is best strategy for you, for her, him, and for the rest of the church that you just stay away or workplace or wherever it might be. I just insert a brief point because it is the world in which we live and I'm not going to sit long on it at all. But what an overwhelming onslaught of temptation we are now facing with the visual imagery designed to encourage sexual sin that is everywhere in this world. We're getting now to a decade of high-speed Internet, and we have a culture that is falling apart. The secular sources are seeing this disaster. They're tracking this disaster. They have no answers. It is destroying relationships and what an amazing change this has been take my car thief 14 years of age doesn't have a license but he has a lust for cars and so he's been in juvie a number of times because he's lifted a car he's broken into a car and he's taken this car and gone on a joyride without a license and stolen cars and he has a craving for it but he keeps getting caught he gets keeps getting turned in because he's taking other people's property and he's breaking the law and he's really got a problem. Well, this 14-year-old gets out of jail for the, for the most recent time and Uncle Clovis comes and visits him and brings him a brand new sports car with the keys and hands the keys to him. Parks it in his garage, says... Have a happy day, nephew, and leaves. Now this kid who has every craving to steal someone else's car, has his own car with his own keys. He doesn't have a license. He can't drive it. But he's got nobody stopping him from taking the sports car. What's he going to do? I mean, he might as well park a cop car out in front of his house. You know exactly what he's going to do. He can't keep his hands off of other people's stuff. 
This all illustrates where we are with visual sexual temptation in our culture. We have put the keys in the hands of 14-year-olds to do whatever they want. And it's no longer illegal. My day, you had to go steal it. Today, the keys are put in your pocket. A click of the finger, and you can have whatever you want. And let me say the obvious, that the morality of our culture has not kept up with the technological capacities, has it? It's going, running in the opposite direction. And we're being destroyed Well, Jesus comes along, Eden Baptist Church, and he says, listen, you have got to deal with what you're thinking about. You've got to deal with what you're thinking about. Now, just a brief sideline here. Why does he just address men and not women? Well, first, I think in the ancient context, it would have been taken as an address to women. I, I think the way we filter this You look on a woman to lust after her, they would have just read that. You look on a man to lust after him, it wouldn't have needed to be discussed. It's kind of like fathers bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In that day, in that setting, there was no mom going, what about us? They didn't think like that, it wasn't necessary. That's one point. Secondly, men were seen more widely in that day as both the initiators and the ultimate responsible parties in sexual matters. Thirdly, where men in a believing community are oriented to sexual purity and marital fidelity, women are not placed in the ugly position of having to resist aggressive solicitations from men. And so Jesus just starts where he needs to start and where it really ultimately should end. Not to put on women, you must withstand these men that are aggressively after you, but rather to put with men, don't even look at a woman with lustful intent. They get that figured out, the community will be in pretty good shape. But everything that Jesus says about men here is obviously equally applicable to women. And what he says to Dan at 54 years of age is different than what he's going to say to a young woman here of 21 years of age. And a man of 17 is going to be different than a man of 77. It's going to apply to us a bit differently as individuals, but we know what Jesus is saying. And we know the problem of the culture in which we live. In fact, I think it might be a point to add just another point of of application that really is not found here as such, but is elsewhere in Scripture. And that is that there is an implicit call here for women to dress lovingly. That is, modestly. Whatever that means in the particular culture where you are at, and cultures vary widely, It is a call for women to dress modestly. As men are not to let their eyes wander, women should dress, should not dress in a manner that provokes leering looks from men. A woman chooses her clothes, but it's the faithful men of the church who determine if her choice is attractive or seductive. Because you put the clothes on doesn't mean you make that determination. Love dresses for others. Take it to heart. We must all. Now, all right, Jesus definitely has turned up the heat on us. There's a lot of conviction in my heart in this room, I hope. But is this really that big a deal? Why, why does Jesus get so bent in stressing the significance of sexual purity? Is it that big of a deal? Notice the pursuit of purity to which he calls us, beginning at verse 29. Is it a big deal? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Not too hard to figure out what he's saying, is it? Does he he mean business? That's kind of gruesome. Why? Because it's better, verse 29, that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. 
Again, the Jesus they don't talk about in a lot of churches. But what we learn by principle, first of all, is that there is only one way to deal with sexual temptation, and that is decisively and aggressively. That's his counsel. Sexual sin is not something to tolerate or ignore. It is not something to dismiss as of little importance. Hendrickson writes, Temptation should be flung aside immediately and decisively. Dilly-dallying is deadly. That's a great line, isn't it? Dilly-dallying is deadly. Halfway measures work havoc. The surgery must be radical. He says, and Christ says. Principle two, heaven and hell are at stake in this battle. Heaven and hell are at stake in this battle. Is Jesus teaching that we earn heaven by our works or lose our salvation if we sin? That's not his point. Scripture clearly teaches that no one who enters heaven will enter because of their own merits. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Later revelation allows us to put it together this way. People who live their lives in open pursuit of sexual infidelity demonstrate that they are likely lost. They may be in a tough funk for a while, but they're demonstrating that we would suspect They haven't received a new heart. They haven't been made a new creature by Christ. That's at least the evidence that they're displaying. We don't determine that. We don't know that. But that's the evidence they're displaying. All sin, all falls short of the glory of God. We all need the mercy and the forgiveness of God. But one of the strong signs that you have been born again and have received a new heart from Christ is that you are fighting sexual temptation. And I ask you today, as a follower of Christ, as one who claims to have embraced the gospel, are you in the battle? Are you fighting it? You're saying, I just hope I don't get caught. I, I can't wait to pursue this on my own. I, I, it's, if, if it just wasn't for other people watching, life would be so much better. You're in trouble. On one level or another, you're in big trouble. Are you fighting it? Is the battle going on in your mind of saying, this thought is sin, I confess it, I turn it to Christ, and I continue to fight against these kinds of thoughts? Are you increasingly disgusted by your sin? These are good signs. Now, Jesus says, gouge your eye out, cut your hand off. You mean that literally? I think every commentary I've ever read on this passage cites third century theologian and ascetic origin of Alexandria who's reported to have, uh, shall we say, severed the offending organs from his body with a knife. A lot of zeal. I think that was a pretty asinine thing to do. And thankfully, the Council of Nicaea in 325 put a stop to that practice, lest it get entrenched in the Christian church. And if you're going to be that literal, let's be real literal, and it's only your right eye. You know pretty well you're going to lust with your left eye. It's only your right hand, and you're going to do things with your left. It's ridiculous. Of course not. Gouging out an eye, cutting off a right hand, is a figurative way of saying this, though, and it's a thing we maybe want to escape from, and that is give up whatever is valuable to you, even if it is a right, turn it away and give it to God and sever it from your life. It may be simple things. It might be simply determining to use your laptop only in a public place in your home. It might be that simple. It might be determining not to bring your phone into your bedroom at night. You got you had a right to do that. The Bible doesn't say that's evil. There's nothing sinful about that. But you make that decision, I'm going to cut my right hand off in this sense. I'm going to keep the phone in somebody else's possession at night. Something along those lines. Walk the other way when you see that person at church who's become a temptation. Pray that God will change your affections. 
But until you're free of it, just stay clear. Don't go to that movie or read that novel everyone at work is talking about. You might feel like you're walking around at work without your right eye in because everybody's talking about it. That's all right. That's all right. Don't go there. If you're Joseph, it means leave your outer garment in Mrs. Potiphar's hand and run away from her presence no matter what happens. People are going to misunderstand. You might even spend time in jail. Just run. Just run. The point that Jesus is making is guard your heart with all diligence for from it flow the issues of life and this is really important. It's got to be a battle. Now as we come to verses 31 and 32, we continue Jesus' consideration of the seventh commandment. Because of the significance of sensual temptation in our day, And because of the significance of the topic of divorce, we're going to cut in half his discussion here between these next two weeks and not continue on. But I just want you to note that point, that 31 and 32 uh, do flow from his discussion on adultery, which leads to the idea of divorce and further discussion on adultery. But let me just draw out a few more points of application with respect to sexual temptation. I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, so cut off your right hand, gouge out your right eye, so that you don't go to hell. Again, this is not how we earn heaven, but it's an evidence that we're on the path of Christ. There's a couple of pointers here, and the first is regarding sin. If you intend to follow Christ, we're going to take this away today. If you intend to follow Christ, you must nurture a hatred for sin. There's got to be a battle. You put on the helmet, you take the shield of faith, you take the sword of the Spirit, you fit yourself with the virtues of Christ, you're going to be at war. You cannot walk with Jesus and get cozy with sin. To follow Jesus is to live a life at war with that indwelling sin. Are you committed to that war? What might be called the mortification of sin. What do I mean by the mortification? The killing of sin. We've died in Christ to sin. But listen to Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put to death sexual immorality in your mind. Are you given to that? Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, not because you will earn the favor of God, but this is the path of life. This is the way a genuine believer lives, putting to death the passions of the flesh. In this area and in every other, you're going to be at war with sin. Secondly, regarding eternity, recognize your final accountability to God. That's what's behind all of this if you're going to be cast into hell. The the foundation behind this is we're going to meet God. We're going to give accountability to God for our actions, for what we do publicly and privately, for what we do in action and deed and what we do in our mind, what we let it think about. There is an accounting before God. And this is the trouble a secularistic society gets into. There's no God in their future. They can live with whatever they can get by with, with any pleasure they they want to pursue, as long as they can do so in relationship with other people, because they don't ever have to answer for their life. Five twenty nine and thirty says that sin will send you to hell. We give ourselves to idolatry, we serve the lust of the flesh, and we're going to stand someday before a God who says, I don't know who you are. You're not my sheep. Regarding mercy, 
Oh, this is an important point right here, and we've got to take it. Do I stand with the Pharisees and say, well, I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I don't like this light being shown upon this area of my life, but I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm certainly not going to hell. I, I've, I've prayed the prayer. I know Jesus. And I, th- this, Do we respond like that? Think how we should respond is chapter 5 and verse 3. I am in abject spiritual poverty. I'm not going to earn God's favor by fighting sexual sin. I need His grace. The Apostle Paul was once a Pharisee himself. He eventually realized that his works were not getting him closer to God. He realized they were drawing him further away from God because they were pointing him to trust in his own righteous deeds. He realized the point was not to merely try to please God, but to know Christ. Philippians 3. These words of Jesus humble us deeply. They prove our utter necessity of His mercy. If anyone walks out of here and says, I think I'm doing pretty good. Well, it's possible your sexual temptation fight is my fight with stealing cars. I'll give you that. That's possible. But in some other area of life, and certainly for the vast majority, I would assume in this area of life, we don't stand before God and say, look at me. We come and realize, I need His mercy. He is the sovereign Lord over our bodies, our minds, our spirit, and we don't acknowledge it. There are times when we say, I'm going to run my own inner space the way I want. And we break His law. But I'd like us to all take heart here. If you get a sense of discouragement that is overwhelming, and you say, I'm not the follower of Christ that I need to be, come to Him in abject spiritual poverty Seek His forgiveness. Submit to the fact that He is Lord and begin the battle one step at a time. He's a merciful Savior. He's a merciful Savior. In a culture of our bent, in a gathering of this size, there are undoubtedly some who are enslaved to sexual temptation. Don't be discouraged, but look to Christ. If you turn your back on Jesus and embrace your sin, you're walking the path of idolatry and destruction. Come to Christ. He's a merciful Savior. Come to Him, and He, by His grace, and through His Spirit will enable you to make progress and growth in your Christian walk such as you don't believe right now is possible. Christ is alive. The Spirit of God is changing His people into the likeness of Christ. And if you know Christ as your Savior, not because of your merits, but because you have trusted the fact that He has died in your place, and you have humbly embraced in repentance His forgiveness, He is changing you. He is sanctifying you by His Word. He is sanctifying you by this Word today. And little by little, though we never find much to be excited about in ourselves or anything, we can know He loves us, He will provide for us, He will receive us as we come to Him in abject spiritual poverty, seeking the forgiveness and saving grace of Christ crucified and risen. He doesn't withhold anything good from us. So when he restricts sexual pleasure, there's nothing sinister or evil in it. He doesn't say, I'm going to give them this drive that is unimaginable and then tell them they can't use it. 
that's not Jesus. He's going to give you his spirit, which is a power beyond anything else in this life. And he will help you and direct you. Come to him. But don't turn your back on him for your sin. Turn your back on your sin for him. Come to him. Lord, we need you. I need you. There isn't anybody here that can stand up and say, I am the epitome of righteousness. I fulfill the law. We break it. We know that we do. And we are deeply moved by Christ's teaching and by the realization that this was taught by one who never submitted to the temptation of sexual pleasure outside of the bond of marriage. He gave this good gift to you and did not exercise it because that was not your call in his life. We're awed. We thank you for his example. We thank you for his teaching. But we thank you above all that the law is fulfilled in him and that united with Christ's death and resurrection, our standing is his standing. We have received that standing. And in this we rejoice and take heart. You are a merciful God. And you are transforming your people from one stage of glory to the next in this life as we anticipate our reunion with Christ in eternity. Lord, I pray that these words of Jesus today that these words of exhortation will have a sanctifying effect on every one of us here, bringing to Christ those who are separated from His saving grace at this point in their life through unbelief, causing all to turn from sin and to embrace Jesus and His salvation. I pray that You bring this about for the glory of Your name and for the joy and the strengthening of Your people. Through Christ we pray. Amen.